From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. The history of America cannot be told without the history of religion. The history of American religion cannot be told without the history of Catholicism. And the history of Catholicism in America cannot be told without the history of the Jesuits in America. That's the beginning of the dust jacket text for the new book, The Jesuits in the United States, A Concise History, by Father David Collins, SJ. It was published by Georgetown University Press. Father Collins is an associate professor in the Department of History at Georgetown, where he's also the Hobb Director of Catholic Studies. It's incredible how much I learned about America and the Society of Jesus in just 175 pages of Father Collins' clear and engaging prose. If you have any interest at all in the Jesuits in the U.S., which I imagine describes you at least to some extent if you're listening to AMDG, then I can't recommend this book highly enough. Starting in 1566, the book traces the activity and growth of the Jesuits throughout America, highlighting key figures, landmark events, and important stories like the history of Jesuit slaveholding. When I started the interview, I thought we'd make it through the book in just one episode, but there's so much richness I wanted to cover that we're splitting up this conversation into two parts. Today, we're covering the 16th century up through the U.S. Civil War, and next week, you'll hear our discussion about more modern Jesuit history. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father David Collins, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for the invitation to come and talk. No, absolutely. And you did... You are here and talking. We are in the same space. We don't get to do a lot of our episodes in the same place, but you're based here in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown. So took the, the quick ride over from, from Georgetown to be here. So thanks for coming in. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book that just came out this year, uh, The Jesuits in the United States, A Concise History. Um, why did you want to write this book? Where did it come from? So it is basically the fruition of 20 plus years of teaching Jesuit history uh, to others. And actually, the the starting point is teaching Jesuit histories to um, Jesuits in training, to novices. That started um, even just as I was ordained and leading Jesuits novices on tours of Southern Maryland, where the Jesuit history in the U.S. started at the beginning of the 17th century. And um, that expanded to taking a role in a Jesuit history program that's run every two years. Um, uh, It it was in Denver, Colorado at the time. And at that point, teaching not just the colonial history, but also uh, the history of the U.S. Jesuits more or less up to the present. And... um, it's, it's really notes from that week of classes with the novices that uh, were turned into the book that you're holding in your hands. So this wasn't just out of the blue for you, but I imagine like when you sit down to take those thoughts and put them into a book, there are things that you learn or surprise you or things that um, you realize in that process. So I'm curious for you as someone who knew that history, but then as you sat down to write this, this you know relatively short volume – what um, what surprised you? What did you learn kind of looking at this material for this purpose that you might not have noticed before? 
Well, having taught it for 20 years, I mean, one of the things that's the advantage of a, of a, a book that comes out of out of teaching, as opposed to a lot of the other history that I write, which is uh, it starts with a research interest and um, and then only small parts of it wind up in the classroom. But with teaching it, and especially to Jesuit novices, part of what's inspiring me is a 20-year development of the kind of questions that um, these young Jesuits are asking about what they're slowly but surely coming to see as their own history. So um, that was that's kind of the inspiration, inspiration number one. Um, I'd say also in, in turning it into a book or de- developing, developing a set of classes, I mean, starting point is, is my specialty as a historian is 15th century German intellectual history, right? I do history of science, history of magic um, in the high and late Middle Ages. So very much removed from the history in that book. Um, so I had this. I brought to this project the skills I have as a historian, but to a, a, a body of material that's that's at the first instance not my expertise, which is a, just a way of starting by saying almost everything was exciting and surprising to me. Nineteenth-century um, history um, uh, fascinated me because of. Uh, uh, the the movement of Jesuits from Europe, uh, leaving Europe as refugees and coming to the United States and and contributing to this sort of the brick and mortar generation from coast to coast of Jesuit works in the United States or in the twentieth century, um, uh, watching how issues of of justice and social concern um, begin to dominate um, what they're doing. It's as if with each generation. They're tapping into an older tradition and yet finding new ways to apply it, um, things in their surroundings that are challenging, and they're, they're struggling to figure out, well, what's the next best step given these circumstances and given that the tradition that we want to be true to? Even the, the way you talk about like teaching this, especially to Jesuits, and as yourself as a Jesuit, kind of coming to see this as your own history, that's an interesting uh, idea to me because like for my family history I was born into my family you learn about where your family came from or like the the history of my country like okay I learned the American history that's always been my history at least since I was old enough to know what that meant but Jesuit history you're entering in as a an adult and then you be, enter this family in a different way and then kind of learn I guess the way that I've like gotten into my my wife's own family and her history and that but there's a sense of something new there and so you're like growing into that and taking ownership of it in a way that I'm sure like it's kind of unusual. It doesn't happen all that often um, for someone where they get kind of thrown into this new family and then get to learn all about it. What was your experience as a Jesuit and historian like kind of coming to like own this history or feel like part of it? Well, you know, I mean, the very tours that of Southern Maryland and colonial Southern Maryland that I began giving to the novices in 1997, it, it was a it was the same thing that I'd been dragged along um, on as a Jesuit novice in the in the 1980s, and um, and I know enough from the experience of my peers. I mean, I was enthralled by the history and eager to learn everything about it. Um, others of my classmates were perhaps um, less inspired by uh, being. Um, Schlepped along around in vans, going from one one site to another, separated by hours of road driving. Um, but but f- for me, and I I think 
I would like to think more broadly for all of us. Um, it's history is it's not the only component, but it's an important component in a kind of identity formation um, to understand um, uh, a bit of why things are the way they are, or also with history of why things might have been different, but in fact have turned out otherwise. I'm very conscious actually of of uh, uh, a lesson that I learned from John O'Malley, who uh, I understand uh, has been on this podcast uh, before, and he he had his um, his axiom in terms of why history is so important is that it it teaches us how contingent things are. So as we look at it, by knowing your history well, and you look at the present, a lesson of history is things don't always have to be or won't always be or haven't always been the way they are now. So if you like things that are going on now, that means you have to be all the more attentive to preserving them and fostering them and letting them grow. Go, uh, grow. And if you look at your contemporary um, society, small s, and there are things you um, feel more uneasy about or plain simple don't like, well, the study of history can be a reminder, well, you know, things can change and um, not, to, not to think just because there's this bad thing now that it will never change because it's always been that way. So that contingency of history. And I think that's a very good thing for uh, Jesuits in particular to learn as, you know, we uh, uh, move our way through the 21st century with a very rich and also complicated history that uh, stretches back almost 500 years here you know, in uh, continental North America. Yeah, and we were talking before that we started recording it, you know, how a lot of the issues facing the Jesuits today are whether questions about higher education or racial justice, um, economic justice questions, the number of Jesuits and how do we keep growing or staying. These are questions that have been asked a long time by previous generations that in different ways and contexts maybe, but a lot of those things that we struggle with today and just wonder about uh, and work on have been things that have occupied people's attention before. Um, and so I do want to let's now like turn a little bit to uh, the history and the books and we can kind of get into it some. Uh, knowing that in our short amount of time, we can't cover all these centuries. Uh, and so I've been thinking about like, how can we how can we get into this? And I, maybe we could start like there's a line, a theme in your book that comes up a few times is that essentially like if we want to understand anything about the Catholic Church in the history of the United States of America, including before it was an independent country, but in the colonies going back um, to those earliest days, if you want to learn about Catholic history, then then you need to also learn about Jesuit history because those things uh, are very closely uh, related and sometimes even almost one and the same at certain eras. And so can you bring us back to the beginning a little bit and kind of set the stage um, for why Jesuit history and Catholic history and like the early days of the the colonies, um, why those things uh, go together? Sure. Well, for starters, when you look at the 13 colonies, um, there's only one colony where you have a Catholic population. That when the Maryland colony was uh, founded and, and when the first English uh, colonists landed in 1634, Maryland was the only colony that had um, uh, legal protection for Catholics um, uh, to practice their faith. And the priests that they brought along with them were Jesuits. Um, that, th there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, um, why the, the 
what the situation of English Catholics in England were, why there were so many English Catholics in in exile, what the relationship of the English Jesuits were to the English Catholics more generally. But in the negotiations, the, the very tricky negotiations that allowed Lord Calvert to found a colony that would have just enough religious toleration for Catholics to be able to practice their faith freely, uh, Jesuits were invited into that project. And um, really in the colonial period, in that territorial region of the 13 colonies, really up until uh, the Revolutionary War um, or the suppression, roughly simultaneous events in the in the 1770s, the only priests, with very few short exceptions, are members of the Society of Jesus. So a lot of the, the spade work that will then begin developing once the new nation is founded was in place because of the Jesuits. Now, with the suppression, of course, um, you have that period from the 1770s until the very beginning of the 19th century when there are no Jesuits. A lot of the priests are ex-Jesuits, but you you have um, movements towards the founding of a, of a church in the United States. And this is when um, you begin to see the development of a diocesan clergy and um, other religious orders coming. But then, in terms of what keeps the Society of Jesus significant once they're reestablished in the United States in 1805, is that they concentrate on uh, the apostolate for which they're so famous for, which is education. And they don't have a monopoly on it, but they have uh, uh, a tremendous piece of the action um, that follows step by step the expansion of a of a Catholic population uh, into the Mississippi River Valley and then all the way to the West Coast. So, the story of American Catholicism is is just intimately tied up with with the Jesuits. It will get much bigger. It will get much more complicated. Um, uh, but the Jesuits will always have this essential role, and it begins with the very beginning. So maybe just as an aside, since we're going to be talking about this period of history a little bit, you mentioned the suppression, which I'm sure some of our listeners aren't familiar with that there's this period in history in which the Jesuits were suppressed and, and not allowed to operate. So could you just talk a little bit briefly about what, what that was and, and then how that played out uh, in this part of the world? So um, in that uh, the last 40 years of the 18th century, um, so 1760s, starting in the 1760s, First, the, um, there were several royal governments um, that began uh, to kick the Jesuits out of their countries and their empires. The French did this, the Spanish did this, the Portuguese did, did this. And there are, again, complicated reasons that have to do with um, uh, uh, political strategies and desires for greater authority um, on the part of these um, monarchs, these absolutist monarchs, as we call them. Some of them had to do with Jesuits um, controlling schools. So that then was a, seen as a, a threat as far as, you know, who's controlling the hearts and minds of our young people in these uh, same countries. And then the Jesuits had become very involved in, in politics. And by doing that, they'd made friends and enemies. And, and all of this, the, the high point, um, of this negative reaction is in 1773 when Pope Clement XIV suppresses the society. 
And so the, the society ceases to exist as a religious order in the church with one small exception, and that's in Russia. Catherine the Great um, had Catholics in her territory. She wanted the Jesuits to run school. So there's this remnant that survives there, which will be relevant to the U.S. story. But what happens in the U.S. is, um, or it's 1773, so in the Maryland colony, is that um, the, the English hierarchy, um, uh, the bishop who's in charge of Eng the uh, English who, who live in mission territory, sends the order to the Jesuits in Maryland that they suppress themselves. So they, they suppress the order, and these priests become then it a parish priests, diocesan priests, under the authority of um, uh, the, the equivalent of the English bishop in charge of the missions. And uh, this, this, this period of suppression will last um, in the, uh, then in the United States until 1805 when um, a, a small group of priests, um, some of whom had been Jesuits before 1773, affiliate with the Russian branch of the order. And so then as of 1805, you have uh, these priests in the United States uh, who are Jesuits and affiliated with the Russian province, and um, they'll start doing Jesuit things until 1814, which is when then the pope issues a decree saying that the society can be reestablished everywhere. Yeah, so we, we're jumping ahead a little bit, like in terms of the history, and we, we'll go back in a bit to talk about kind of even earlier times and work with in, indigenous communities when the, the first Jesuits came. But because we're here, I, I think, and these are like the early days and right before, again, the U.S. is founded uh, as, a, as a country in the, the Revolutionary War, it, interesting, a parallel that, again, the society is suppressed and like the at least one figure in kind of American Catholic history who was so important in this era, John Carroll, who had been born in the United States or in America in the colonies and then became a Jesuit and was studying in, in Europe and then came back, became the first bishop, a Catholic bishop in the United States, but was not a Jesuit because they had been suppressed. So um, John Carroll's a name, there's a university named for him in Cleveland, it's named all over Georgetown. Um, why is he an important person? Kind of what role did he play? He takes on a, a pretty prominent role in the book uh, in terms of a, a real kind of world historical figure at that era. Yeah. I, I would start this by saying, you know, I've, I've been trained as a historian um, uh, to be really skeptical of identifying single people as um, the ultimate movers and shakers of history. Mm -hmm. um, that history always requires a complex, uh, there's a complex set of forces and a large number of people who are needed to make anything possible. That being said, I think if uh, John Carroll may may be taken as the exception then that proves the rule because he he had a really a profound influence on the development of a church um, in the early nation so he comes from a catholic family in maryland one of these elite catholic families that had sort of taken advantage of the religious toleration allowed in maryland he'd gotten his the equivalent of a grammar school education um uh, that, that was available to Catholics in Maryland at the time. But beyond that, there, was, there were no opportunities for Catholics in the colonial period to be educated. They couldn't go to schools outside of Maryland because of religious tests. So they sent him to um, uh, St. Omer's, which was the Catholic school in, for the English in exile. And it was in North 
uh, eastern France. He does his schooling. He enters the Jesuit order. He's teaching in the lowlands, and that's the moment of suppression. And he, he with the other American Jesuits who were in Europe, they had to decide were they going to stay in Europe or were they going to come home. So he comes home then in uh, 1774 or so and uh, uh, begins to kind of look around and, and realizes something needs to be done without the Jesuits anymore. Um, uh, how, how is this, how is, how is Catholicism going to run? Um, and he sets himself to organizing um, these folks to, um, you know, we've got to start thinking about a church that, that can exist on its own, that doesn't need the Jesuits. Um, and so he organizes the clergy. Um, he establishes a, a body that um, will do all the things that administratively, organizationally are needed in, in a church. Um, they start thinking about the big questions of, you know, should they ask for a bishop? Um, uh, ultimately, they, they do do that, and, and um, uh, he will be elected uh, bishop, and that election will be approved by Rome, um, and they determine that Baltimore will be the first see. Um, they decide, um, Carol pushes, um, you know, we need, we need a proper college because um, uh, the Catholics need an option of educating their, their sons, it would be sons at the time, other than sending them to Europe, which could be prohibitively expensive and just not practical for many families. Um, that college is also a way to encourage vocations because uh, they can't rely on the Jesuits anymore to provide priests. So, and this is then ultimately uh, Georgetown College, now Georgetown University. And you know, really also interesting in that decision-making process uh, was the question of, well, who do we open enrollment to? And somebody of Carol's background, you might say, well, you know, if William and Mary and Princeton and Yale and Harvard have prohibited Catholics um, for all intents and purposes by their religious test, we well, should do the same at Georgetown. But that's exactly what they do not do. Um, they really specifically say that there will be no religious test um, for students matriculating. Um, and they, there's both virtue and necessity involved in that decision. The virtue is, is, is a real commitment to religious toleration and religious liberty. It also increases the pool of potential students. So they could count on a higher enrollment in a country that was still overwhelmingly, um, uh, uh, overwhelmingly non-Catholic. He's going to invite other religious orders in. He's going to invite women's religious orders in um, to provide for the education of Catholic girls. Um, uh, 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 invite the Sulpicians in to find a, found a proper seminary, which is St. Mary's in Baltimore to this day. So he's, he's doing all kinds of things that are allowing for the emergence of what you'd want from, you know, a national church. This is Catholicism in America. This is what it needs. Um, and uh, he went about in that period until he uh, ate... Uh, 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 18, 18, 20, uh, I'm going to forget the year that he died, but uh, 1820 or so by 1820, all these pieces are going to be in place um, that uh, it really is thanks to his imagination and energy. Um, so again, 
there are no heroes in history, but it, uh, he's the exception that proves the rule <laughs> in terms of this history that I'm telling. So I do want to turn back the clock a little bit. So you mentioned him being born to a Catholic family in Maryland. Um, so he was into that context. He would have known the Jesuits growing up, right? Which is how he entered. He at least was familiar with them. So setting the stage for someone like John Carroll, the Jesuits who had come before, what was that situation there? You mentioned religious liberty. Clearly there are all those challenges for how would a church operate um, in a place where it wasn't really welcome a lot, a lot of time. So in the book, you, you write about the early Jesuits in Maryland and also the Jesuit missionaries even before that in what is now Canada, kind of upstate New York. Those boundaries were not the same as they are now, working with indigenous communities. And, and so, yeah, can we maybe even turn the clock back a little bit and, and set the stage for someone like John Carroll, what came before him? Okay, so if you, if you, if you begin by looking on the East Coast, right, there, there, are, there will be three groups of Jesuits that will try to get traction in, again, what we think of now as the U.S. There's a Spanish effort in the 1570s. They come up from Havana, uh, stop briefly in Florida, and get as far as the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, that mission doesn't last very long, doesn't last a full year. They go back and they get, um, in fact, there's a letter to uh, the Superior General Francis Borgia, like, don't even try again. There's just no hope. And um, at, at the same time, uh, Borges has just gotten a letter from Philip, of, uh, Philip II of Spain that he wants Jesuits in Mexico. So that the, you could almost say that the, the, the Jesuit um, enterprise in Mexico is due to how inhospitable the Spanish Jesuits found um, the American uh, South, the Southeast uh, uh, coastline. Um, the other group are the French Jesuits who are coming in from the St. Lawrence Seaway and then get down into the territory of New York. And then so both groups, they're piggybacking on colonial powers, but Catholic colonial powers. The third group that uh, comes in in 1634 is the English Jesuits who are who are coming into the Maryland colony, um, which you know has has worked out this deal. Um, the, the proprietor, the Calverts, um, the proprietor's family, they're Catholic. A minority of the principal colonists will be Catholic, and a minority of the laboring um, population will be Catholic. And Calvert arranged for three Jesuits to, to tag along. What did these Jesuits want to do? And it's true in all three circumstances. The, the drive was two interests— that existed somewhat in tension throughout the whole history. And, but also there's an asymmetry in terms of the amount of energy to the interest. And those two interests are to serve the settlers who were Catholic and to evangelize native populations. And of those two, the clear interest in all three examples, the priority would be to evangelize the Native Americans. That was, that was a tremendous motivation uh, an excitement to all of these Europeans in coming to um, what for the Europeans was uh, a, a new world. Um, in Maryland, you had you had the the balance of what then actually played out is kind of the reverse of what the Jesuits were hoping for. They ultimately they there's always going to be a, a little bit of contact with the native populations on the Potomac River, 
Um, but the principal work will be with the uh, the English Catholics, and the 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 reason for that is um, it has a bit to do with the demographics of the Native American population. It also has to do with uh, the Calvert family's concern that um, to the rest of the Protestant English colonists, the idea that there were Jesuit priests trying to evangelize the native populations would be taken as deeply offensive, like the worst form of popery. Why on earth is this being allowed? Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't the Native Americans be converted to Christianity? I think is sort of what, what was going on. Um, so the, the, the Maryland effort, there will always be a little bit of contact with the um, native populations and some uh, uh, you know, Christian communities that emerge that way, but the, the principal work is going to be with the English Catholics themselves. So when we're talking about the Jesuits then emerging at this time in these places, um, the reality of Jesuit slaveholding is an issue that is always like on my mind in terms of this era, is that they're trying to establish uh, themselves and they're reaching out, they're serving settlers, they're serving... Um, indigenous communities, they're having to be kind of flexible and, and nimble and trying to make their way in a world that's largely like skeptical at the, at the best, right? Um, and maybe again, like kind of prohibits them from, from operating. So how did Jesuit slaveholding come to happen? Um, how is it connected to um, what they were facing in, in these, these days in, in the colonies? And like, how could just, yeah, how, how is that even possible? It's, for me, when I think about it, like Jesuits who would say, like, you know, every person born with the image and likeness of God um, also owning human beings as, as slaves. So for, uh, this is, again, a, a big issue, and we can't get into it all here, but could you provide some of the historical context of, like, how could this happen? So first, um, let, uh, let me get at it um, practically speaking. Yeah. Okay, so the, the question that precedes how did they get enslaved people is why did they have land in the first place? And in fact, the, their ownership of land has a lot to do with um, the religious liberty issue that was so key to them being, um, being able to be in Maryland. The Calverts were very eager to ensure that there was no, or to ensure that there was a very clear division between church and state. So whereas the Jesuits in Spain or the Jesuits in France could imagine all kinds of royal patronage um, or corporate patronage. For the Calverts, it was all a matter of these, th these Catholics and these Catholic priests are not being supported in any way by the government of the colony. So the Jesuits were treated like every other leading colonist. And what the deal was is, and this was the way that you recruited colonists to a, to a colony like Maryland is the Calverts would go around at seeing if they could persuade um, uh, English gentlemen to come as colonists. And what they would get when they landed is a certain amount of land. And the quantity of land that you would get was in proportion to not just it would be in proportion to how many people you brought over. So your your job as a, a gentleman colonist was to, you would bring over your family and you would bring over laborers. And the then these laborers would work the land. They would work the land for a particular number of years. And then the contract would be satisfied. And then they would join the mainstream of a working class population in, in the colony. So, and this is the, the indentured servants that many people might remember from 
from their uh, grammar school or high school American history. So the Jesuits got the land um, and they brought over indentured servants. And this was the, that was the labor market um, uh, in the, the early 17th century. By the middle of the 17th century, uh, there was a change afoot. And the, the major landowners and, and farmers, they were, they were moving in directions of uh, different crops and, and doing crops differently and at a different size and a scale. And there was not the labor market among indentured servants to do what the, um, uh, the landowners wanted. And this then is pushing the transition of the labor market but from one that is where the, the workers are indentured servants to where they're enslaved Africans and persons of African descent. The, this happened on the Jesuit land as it was happening on plantations all around Maryland and, and in Virginia. The, um, the, the first definitive record of Jesuit um, uh, slave ownership is is uh, in the early, early 1700s. Um, there's some indication that they might have had um, uh, enslaved workers uh, in their houses and in their fields uh, a bit earlier than that, but, but certainly by the very first years of the 1700s. This is how they ever came to own the slaves. One of the, one of the frustrating things, um, of the many frustrating things in this story, is that the Jesuit archives from this period, as full as they are of all kinds of information, there, there's, there's nothing giving much indication of how they were thinking their way through this. Um, so we don't, we don't know exactly what we were, they were thinking. But I, I'll say two things. Like if they're looking for an idea, and this gets a little bit more to the theoretical question that you're posing, like how could they think this was okay? Really, the question is, is why would they think it wasn't? Mm. And I, that sounds hard, <laughs> but it, it is a hard reality of history in this period. Um, they could look around them at their fellow Marylanders, the fellow large landowners, and this is what everybody was doing. They could also look around, what's their other great resource? Well, the, their, their fellow Jesuits. But the fact of the matter is, is if they looked at other Jesuit missionaries in the Americas, especially, and, and in the uh, Spanish and Portuguese parts of uh, the Americas, uh, what they would see is that um, all the Jesuit missions were, in the course of the 17th century, either already um, deeply involved in um, uh, slave labor or or moving in that direction over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries. So who, who's, who's going to be checking their reasoning? Um, not – no one. No one. And this just makes the story that much sadder. Part of the, that, the sadness of the story too was – so again, they saw that they would – like they were going to baptize and kind of catechize those who were – they were enslaved, and um, that seems like that was something that was important to them to do. Um, but then they sold uh, 
at least in multiple sales, but the, the, the big one of the 272 from, from Maryland to Louisiana. Um, so I think we should just mention, too, is I, again, to, even to this day, you know, this week that we're talking there, there's news about Jesuits and the descendants of those 272 working together to try to have some reparation and way forward and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, so just we should, again, we just I can't talk about this time without then mentioning yeah. also the sale. So not only kind of falling into to that, but a sale that was, I know it was controversial and, and seen to be, uh, even from the superiors in Rome, like seen as a kind of questionable yeah. uh, to not, to, to also to sell human beings. So um, here, the uh, important part of the, the dimension of the story is, this is now after the suppression. Um, this is now after the French Revolution. This is after um, the f- foundations of a very robust abolitionist movement in the U.S., most importantly in England, but really around the world. And whereas in the colonial period, we don't see much of anything in terms of Jesuits in America deliberating about the ownership of human beings, from 1805 forward, it's a major topic of conversation, and it's a significant concern. And really from, uh, if you take the, the sale of 1837 as an as endpoint, which in a lot of respects it's not, but... But from 1805 to 1837, um, you have really a vigorous and um, uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a, a vigorous con- uh, contested um, uh, set of de- contested set of issues, debates of um, uh, over the what to do with the enslaved people and even the plantations themselves. What are Jesuits doing? with plantations? Um, should they sell it? Should they get rid of the land? What should they do with it? And then also then what do you do with the, with the enslaved people? And there, um, in, in terms of you know, the decision that was ultimately made, we, you know, we have, um, we, we have um, the minutes of provincials meetings and province congregations where in kind of a classic Jesuit discernment, they list all the reasons why a sale would be a good thing to do, all the reasons why a sale wouldn't be good to do. And you have it also then within the pluses and the minus categories. What are the economic reasons? What are the apostolic reasons? Um, There are moral issues that are involved, but they're not as simple. None of them is um, that it's simply fundamentally immoral to own a human being or to claim ownership over a human The moral ones are what, if, what effect does the management of an enslaved population have on a priest? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or what effect would a sale have on those who were sold? So these things did come up. But really the driving issue is, is this. The, we have the plantations and the enslaved people for the sake of funding the life and the mission of the society. Is it achieving that? The answer was no, because they weren't all that, at that point, successfully revenue generating. So what do you do when you have a bad investment that's not generating the kind of revenue that you think um, is ideal? And you know, there's a segment that says, regardless, um, this, this is part of our patrimony and kind of classic white supremacist argument on behalf of, of, of slavery. You know, we need to take care of these people. Um, so no sale. 
You have others that say, could we experiment with something like um, uh, emancipating them and, and then sort of rehiring them as tenant farmers? That was a very minority position, but it was out there. And then you have uh, a middle segment, or it's size-wise a middle segment, but, but it happened to be the position held by those in authority that was, you know, you, when you have a bad investment, you take the money out of one investment and you put it in something else. And that's what that's what affected the sale. So when you're studying Jesuit history and, and learning this and reading these minutes and kind of reflecting on these sins, like in addition to again so many others we could we could go into, um, including and in work with indigenous communities. Um, you're also a Jesuit, so this is your family. You're part you're part of this in the way that any of our families can look to family members of ours who have done things. Um, we're not proud of as Catholics to be part of a church that is broken in a lot of ways. Um, for you as, again, someone who knows a lot about this history and yourself as a Jesuit, is that a challenge for you to kind of bring, like reconcile your your vocation with the sense of being part of something that uh, has been, you know, a sinful and broken? Um, I'm just curious, again, as a historian, in some ways, if you don't know the history that well, it's kind of easier to just like uh, not even think about it much. But as yeah. someone who's spent a lot of time with that, uh, does that have like an effect on you? How do you navigate um, those questions? Yeah. I, I think there's, there's a, uh, it's a dimension of being a historian um, and, and what's serious history, the serious study of history always is going to lead to. And and that is um, a close examination of human failure. Hmm. Uh, theologians, I suppose, do it in their way. Historians do it in theirs. Uh, uh, sometimes history is called the melancholy science for precisely that reason. Hmm. Is you're you're inevitably going to be uh, confronted with um, uh, uh, the, the 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 human failure, um, and and. And real, you know, human failure at all kinds of levels. Uh, uh, individuals who who fail in their way, and then um, uh, interactions, which are 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 serious failures and disappointments. I, I do not mean this glibly at all. But if one starting point is one could find a community um, in which a serious examination would never result in discovering that kind of failure, you're going to be looking for an awfully long time, right? Mm. And, and so then the challenge for the historian is, well, how do you take history in its fullness, um, the successes and the failures, and hold them together to provide lessons in the form, well, exactly how I started um, a few minutes ago, um, the contingency of the human situation and the uh, uh, things never happen out of necessity um, or uh, there's a whole lot that doesn't happen out of necessity, and and human decision making um, is is always going to be um, is always going to is, is always going to present um, be presented with choices, and the the study of history um, and the study of history like this is um, a way of showing how people confront choices, how they succeed and fail. Um, you know the the consequences of the sale within the Jesuit community were, um, you know, uh, uh, traumatic in their own way. It nearly tore the province uh, province apart at the time, and it it took years to rebuild it. Um, uh, those those kind of things are part of what a history, historian is sort of obliged to look at with the as clear lenses as possible. 
That's the end of the first part of my conversation with Father David Collins. Come back next week for the second part. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and facebook.com slash jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.